we ask you to bless this time as we look at your word, guide and lead us and show us what you would show us in this uh, section. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Second Kings chapter 14. One of the things I've been finding so interesting in, in uh, both Samuel and Kings is how much uh, politics has not changed over the thousands of years. <laughs> uh, still people trying to hurt each other and conspire against each other and, and cheat each other and all of that stuff that goes on. <laughs> nothing, nothing, nothing new uh, as far as this goes. So chapter 14, verse 1. In the second year of Joash, the, the son of Jehoiaz, king of Israel, reigned Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah. And he was 25 years old when he began to reign and reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Jehoiadan of Jerusalem. And he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord, but not like David his father. He did according to all the things that Joash his father did. Howbeit the high places were not taken away, as yet the people did sacrifice and burn incense on the high places. All right, so now we have another switch in kings. And again, remember we've said this, and just to bring this out, so we always remember this, they... When one king dies, they, they either go backwards to when the next king started or they go on until that next king dies. So it gets very confusing sometimes to read these, you know, because all of a sudden you think somebody's totally gone, dead and gone and then you go backwards into their life. Uh, because our last, our last chapter we had Joe Ash die uh, and now we're going backwards again. <laughs> and so Amaziah comes to reign. He's 25 years old when he begins his reign, and he's a good king. For the most part, he's a good king. But he did one thing. It says he didn't do as David did. Now, David brought all the people together under one rule, one government, and one religion. He had no, he did not even allow idols and, and idol worship. He destroyed temples. He destroyed uh, all of that stuff. But Amaziah is worshiping God. He leads the people to worship God, but he does not get rid of the high places. And those are the other temples that Solomon built in on there and all the temples all around that area built on the hilltops. He declared that God was the God. He declared that you're going to worship, but he did not destroy the other areas of worship. So he's making provision for sin. And this is a problem that People have, including us as Christians, we make provision for sin. Uh, well, God, you know, uh, I'm just going to keep it around just in case. <laughs> just in case I need it or just in case, you know, I, I, God, I really want to serve you, but. And that's what they're doing here. The king seems to be okay, you know, following God, but his people are not, are still have that provision for sin provided to them. And it says they burnt sacrifice, uh, did sacrifice and burnt incense in the high places. So in verse 5, And it came to pass, as soon as the kingdom was confirmed into his hand, that he slew his servants, which had slain the king his father. But the children of the murderers he slew not, according to that, unto that which is written in the book of the law of Moses, wherein the law, Lord commanded, saying, The fathers shall not be put to death for their children, nor the children be put to death for their fathers, but every man shall be put to death for his own sin. He slew the Edom in the Valley of Salt, 10,000, and took Selah by war, and called the name of it Jachethel until this day. 
All right, so when he took over, if you remember going back to chapter 12, they conspired against his father and, and murdered his father. So as soon as he gets his kingdom strengthened and he's got his army under him and everything, he seeks out the ones that murdered his father and he executes them. And it's kind of interesting because it says that he did not kill their children and the why that he told, did not kill their children was a very simple reason because in Deuteronomy 24, 16, it said that the children shall not die for the sins of their father and the father shall not die for the sins of their children. Now, we kind of think, well, that makes all the sense in the world because we come from a Judeo-Christian background. It makes sense that you don't punish somebody else for something that was done by them, by, by their family. But it was normal for that to happen before. Even if you look at the story of Daniel in, in Daniel 6, where Daniel's cast into the lion's den and he survives, you read the very next thing that happens, King, the king uh, Darius takes him out of the out of it, he grabs all the people that conspired against him and their families, 120 people and their families throw them into the lion's den and, get, and they get destroyed before they even hit the, hit, the, hit the bottom. That was the normal routine in the Middle East and for most of the world. If your family hurt, hurt somebody, your, you know, if you hurt somebody, your whole family would, could pay the price. And uh, we see this even going back into uh, Joshua 7 when Achan took the garments and the silver and the gold. Uh, God said to take him and his family and execute them. So God even was saying this. Now, in this case, we kind of believe that Achan's family knew what happened and, and kept his secret. Otherwise, they would not have been guilty before God. Uh, when God told the people they could have you know, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, this was the same, same process. God was putting a restriction on his people because in that society, if you stole from me, then I would just take all my, all my servants and myself, I'd ride into your, your, your little uh, complex, take everything I wanted, kill, kill anybody in your family, you and, and anybody in your family because you hurt me. And so God said, no, you can only do equal what was done to you. So this was a provision. And it's impressive that Amaziah knew the law well enough to know this and not follow what the world around him was doing. So Amaziah has been raised correctly. He's been raised into knowing God's word just as, as his father had been raised knowing God's word. And this is something that's important for us to note. He understood. He knew. So when he does, if he does anything wrong later on, he's not going to be guilt, guiltless because he knows the law. And this is something for us. This is us as parents and of our families. We're to raise up our children to know God's rules and go, go, knows God's laws. We're not accountable for what they do with it, but we are accountable to make sure they understand God's rules. And that will help, it'll actually make them more guilty before God if they reject him. And this is something that's very important. This is why we need to get to know his word so that we can be uh, able to walk according to his will. Um, and I've said this before, just because somebody will skip reading the Bible or skip coming to church does not mean that they're less, you know, less willing. I really do believe that God says, you were supposed to, if you were supposed to be something, you're accountable for what you were supposed to have heard. Uh, 
And so this man knew the law, and he wasn't going to harm the children. Now, one of the things that happened, though, these leaders would kill entire families so that the family wouldn't rise up against him. Now, the ones that conspired against Amaziah's father, they did not kill the entire royal line, and now they're going to pay the price for having not killed the royal line all right, uh, in their conspiracy. And we don't know if his father deserved it or what his father did or why they thought he was weak, but they didn't, somebody didn't like him and, tried to, and, 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 and executed him. And it uh, doesn't tell us why. And then at the very end, we have this little verse that says, And he slew of Edom in the Valley of Salt 10,000 individuals. If you go back to 2 Kings 8, verse 20, Edom rebelled against the king of Judah and pulled aside. And Edom is down to the southeast of Israel, down on the southeast corner of the Dead Sea. So Amaziah rides down into where Edom is at and kills 10,000 of their soldiers and takes back uh, the land that is Selah, or the city of Selah. Um, it is, if you have the map, it's, Selah is right about the, where the word Edom is. It doesn't show that particular city. So it's very far south of where they're at, but the Edom had been their servants for a long time, and they rebelled, and he decided, I'm going to go back and get my, <laughs> make them vassals again. And so this is the problem with these whole nation wars and everything. You, one person is a vassal state for a long time. They rebel, and eventually somebody further down the road says, well, you were my vassal before. I'm going to take you take you again. And we even see it to this day. Uh, if you're familiar with what's going on up in the Ukraine and all of those areas, all those stand areas that, you know, um, Turkestan and all the, you know, in the Caspian area, they spun off into freedom away from Russia. And now what's going on is Russia's been trying to take them back over the last, last couple decades uh, and put them back into subjection underneath them. Uh, we saw, we see that uh, in the Asia with Europe, uh, with uh, China and Japan battling over areas of land that they both claim is theirs, and they've been fighting over it for millennia. <laughs> One will take it, rule it for a long time, and the other will take it. And we, you know, you go, well, these battles should be over by now. We're, we're at a time of peace, but these battles are still going on all the time. Mongolia has had long-running battles with their neighbors because they want to be free, and the other ones want them to be part of their back under their control. Uh, so we have all these problems, and all through Africa, you see these, these little battles going on between all those little countries that have been in war forever. And so this is not a new thing. Again, the, the point I'm bringing out on this is there's nothing new. Everything continues just as it always has, always will until something big changes, and the big change will be when Jesus comes back and reigns for a 1,000 years of peace. But until then, all these little countries, all these little nations fight each other, battle each other, don't like being under the thumb of the other one and fight back against them and take it, you know, and get freed out from underneath them. And then eventually they start weakening down and the other one takes them. And this is what Amaziah has done. He's gone back into Edom and said, okay, I'm going to take my, our territory back. And uh, in the process, kill, it says kill, kills 10,000 of the Edomites. All right. Verse 8. And Amaziah sent messengers to Jehoash, the son of Jehoiaz, 
son of Jehu, king of Israel, saying, Come, let us look one another in the face. And Jehoash, the king of Israel, sent to Amaziah, the king of Judah, saying, The thistle that was in Lebanon sent to the cedar that was in Lebanon, saying, Give your daughter to my son to wife. And there passed a wild beast that was in Lebanon and trod down the thistle. You have indeed smitten the Edom, and your heart has lifted you up. Glory in this and tarry at home. Why should you, why should you meddle in your, uh, to your hurt that you should fall, even you and Judah, with them? But Amaziah would not hear it. Therefore Je- Jehoash, king of Israel, went up, and he and Amaziah, king of Judah, looked one another in the face at Beth Shemesh, which belongs to Judah. And Judah was put to the worst before Israel, and they fled every man to their tents. And Jehoash, king of Israel, took Amaziah, king of Judah, the son of Jehoash, the son of Ahaziah at Bershemesh, and came to Jerusalem and broke down the wall of Jerusalem from the gate of Ephraim to the corner gate, 400 cubits. And he took all the gold and silver and all the vessels that were found in the house of the Lord and in the treasury of the king and hostages and returned to Samaria. This is kind of an interesting story. Amaziah goes, he beats the Edomites. And then he gets cocky. (laughs) He gets a little little, uh, bold and brave because if you remember in the previous chapter, Joash had finally defeated Syria. So he has been a proven leader against a very strong army. Syria was a very strong nation that had been conquering everybody, and he took back his territory. And now we have Amaziah going and beating Edom. Now, Edom was not a great nation. They weren't weaklings by any stretch of the imagination, but they weren't a strong, strong nation. They had gotten their sovereignty from Judah a couple kings before, but they still weren't a powerhouse. Jehoash has been be- has beaten a powerhouse. All right, he has beaten Syria. He is seriously a contender in the world at this point. He's not. He's taken back all of his land. He's been increasing the land of Israel's possessions, and Amaziah, in his pride, says, "Come and meet me face to face." In other words, you know, let's have a throwdown. Let's let's have a battle. Let's go. Let's go to war. And uh, that's what that come, come and look, look at one another in the face is. And Joash gives him a kind of an interesting answer. He says, the thistle of Lebanon sent to the cedar, cedar of Lebanon. And, who, and you can guess who he's saying is which. You know, he's saying, uh, okay, you little thistle, you're, you're talking to me, the tree. You may think you're something, but you're, you're, you're really nothing. Now, if you tell this, something like that to somebody who thinks they're something, all you've done is waved a red flat, a red cape in front of that, <laughs> in front of that person. And I don't know if Jehoash was trying to intimidate him or get him to go back. It doesn't really. I don't really know. Uh, his first, you know, he could have just ignored him and say, it, "It's not, you know, you're not worth my time and effort." Uh, and and then he goes in, and one of the beasts came in and trod down the thistle. <laughs> He goes, you know, you're you're a nothing. You're a nothing. You know, I don't even have to come against you. You're going to you're going to uh, fall. Uh, and then he gave him a compliment. You have indeed smitten Edom, and your heart has lifted you up. Glory in this, and tarry at home. Okay, he says, just enjoy your victory. <laughs> you know, enjoy your victory. Leave me alone. 
It, you're, you, you'll, I don't want to beat you, and you don't want to be fighting. You don't want to be playing against me. All right. Uh, and then he said, "Why should you meddle to your hurt?" And meddle is kind of an interesting word because it literally is, "Why should you wage war to your distress and misery?" Is what the what the, your hurt and meddling goes. So in other words, he's saying, if you come against me, if you're coming to wage war against me, you will, you will be defeated. And you know, he's speaking from a very strong point. Again, he has beaten back Syria, which is a major player in, in the history of this period of time. Syria was going to be one of those nations that took over most of that area. And then you're going to have Assyria come along and, and take over that whole, that whole northern part of the Middle East. Then you will have Babylon, who takes over everything in the Middle East and all the way out to India. And then, of course, you'll have the Greeks that come along and take the Middle East all the way to India and most northern, northern Africa and parts of Europe. And then you get the Roman Empire, which takes over all of that plus most of Europe. Uh, so he is talking to one of the, one of the major players you know, that has that is, is defeated a major player. And... He uh, is being kind of put down in your place. Just stay, stay at home. You know, enjoy your glory and stay at home and don't, don't lose a battle. Uh, and it says in verse 11, but Amaziah would not hear. All right. He gathers up his armies and says, therefore, Joash, king of Israel, went up and he and Amaziah, king of Judah, looked one another in the face at Beershemesh. Now, it's kind of an interesting thing here. If you have looked at your map, the northern kingdom is up around Damascus. It's up around the Galilee area and a little bit below. Beershemesh is southwest of Jerusalem. <laughs> okay, so they're not even meeting someplace up in the up around, up where you would normally expect the battle to be, you know, up, up there in uh, uh, the Megiddo Valley or any of those places where it was between Jerusalem and Damascus. They're way down. When, when uh, Jehoash comes in, he meets him way down in, in, their, in their territory. So he's not even playing games. When he, decided, when he says, okay, you want to have a battle? I'm taking the battle to you. Now, it could be that this is where they met because maybe Amaziah really got cocky while he's still way down south of the Dead Sea and challenging him and says, I'm not going to get back. Uh, and th that would make sense that he meets him there in Beth Shemesh. Uh, it's, uh, do you see where it's at? Yeah, it's a long ways away. Well, from where, where you would expect it to be, it's a long ways away. Yeah. Uh, and again, if he was down, way down in Shilau, where he, which he called Jacques uh, uh, Tothel. Uh, if he made his challenge while he was down there, it kind of makes sense they meet there. But I don't know why he would have made his challenge from there. I would have come closer to home and then made my challenge. But who knows? Uh, it might have taken longer for him to get his army together back together once, he, once, he, once his challenge was accepted. Wouldn't that be over 100 miles? Uh, well... From Jerusalem, well, it's not all that far. But from Damascus, it's a long ways. From Damascus to yeah. And even if you say he's in Samaria, it's still a pretty good, pretty good uh, trip down there to fight. Uh, 
So, but they meet in the southern kingdom to have this battle. And this is going to be a pretty big deal because when you're, when you're defending your home territory, you usually have a little more uh, fight in you because you're, you're in your home territory. It's one thing to fight on foreign territory, but when you're in your own area, you usually get a little bit of fanaticism involved with it. And I've got to defend my family and make sure I don't lose my land. Uh, so they come up and they, they meet in battle. And Judah was put to the worst. And this is kind of it. And every man fled to their tents. And this means they were literally routed. All right. They, they went up against uh, Jehoash and he beat the tar out of them. And everybody ran away and ran home, ran home. And in the process, in verse 13, and Joash, Jehoash, king of Israel, took Amaziah, king of Judah, and went to, went to Jerusalem. Conquered him, went to Jerusalem. And then he did something very interesting. He went to Jerusalem. He broke down the outer wall of Jerusalem. It said for, three, uh, for 400 cubits. That means he tore down approximately 600 feet of the outer defense of Jerusalem. That's a lot of, lot of uh, wall being torn down. And the point that he was making here is, you think you were strong, I'm now going to take away even what defense you thought you had. He tears down 600 feet of wall. That is not something that gets put back up overnight. So, and he's, gonna, he's not going to take him out of, his, out of his kingdom. He leaves him to be king. But he, but he humbles him big time. Beats his army tears down the outer defense of the wall. And we don't really understand the power of the defense of the walls because in our day, we just fly over the walls or, or you know, fly, you know, you know send a, sell a helicopter in, you know, plant, plant, some, plant some TNT in the wall and blow the whole wall down. You know, we don't, we don't understand it. But in those days, without, a city without a wall was in trouble. Uh, and we could even, in our, in our American history, go back to our American forts. You know, the cavalry would build their forts where they would have a... A, a wall made out of wood in most cases where they could stand and they could shoot down, but they, they were less susceptible to being hit. Uh, that's the value of the wall. Uh, and so he, took a, he defeated him. He humbled him in battle. Then he humbled him in his, in his, in his uh, capital by taking out 600 feet of, of uh, the wall. Then he went into the temple treasury and took all the gold and silver out of the temple and then went into the palace and took all the gold and silver out of the palace. So he is making a statement. Now, he could have taken Amaziah's life. He didn't do that. But he humbled him in battle, sent his army out, humbled his, humbled his major fortified city, and took all of his wealth. And just in case, took all of God's wealth as well. This is quite a defeat that he took. He's gone from being top dog, having defeated Edom, <laughs> to being totally bruised and humiliated. And this is a big deal. Because now, before he can even start to rebuild the walls, what does he have to do? He has to increase the taxes on his people and get his money back. Now, it doesn't tell us that that's what he's did, but we know what happens when governments run out of money. They don't stop spending money. 
Never, never have, never will. They just tax the people more. And you know that that's what he had to have done because nothing, nothing's new under the sun. So we, it would be done in our day and age. It would have been done in his day and age. And he would have justified it by we lost the battle and they took everything. And we need to repair the walls. And just the same way we try to just, you know, our government will try to justify all their spending today. We've got to do this, that, and the other thing. So we need you to give us money. So he would have been doing this because his first priority is going to be to rebuild that wall and then to re rebuild the coffers so he can pay the soldiers, he can pay the, the workers, he can buy the food, he can do all this. So for a while, taxes are going to go up. So people aren't going to be very happy with him. All right? Because anytime taxes go up, the people grumble, even against the king. Now, they might not grumble to his face, they might not grumble to his tax collectors, but they will grumble about the extra taxes. And all of this is going to happen. And so uh, Jehoiaz takes all of this, he takes all the silver and gold out of, out of there, and he even takes some hostages just to make sure that Amaziah is going to behave himself. Uh, probably royal princes and, and those type of things to make sure that if he decides to go to war, first, first casualty will be his family. And, and the, royal, the royal people. And it doesn't say that, but we know he didn't just take the commoner off the street. He didn't take the town drunks. You know, he took somebody that was going to be a big deal to Amaziah to have lost. Uh, you know, he took you know, the, royal, the royal family, uh, maybe some craftsmen. He took, some, he took important people to them. Maybe he took all the masons <laughs> with him so they couldn't build, rebuild the city. We don't know who, who he took as hostages, but they're not... They're not the nobodies of the town that he took. All right, and then we have this little interesting in verse 15. Now the rest of the acts of Jehoiash, which he did in his might and how he, brought, how he fought with Amaziah, the king of Judah, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? And Jehoiash slept with his fathers and was buried in Samaria with the kings of Israel. And Jeroboam, his son, reigned in his stead. So now we have, while Amaziah is still living, we have... Jehoiaz dead, and his son Jeroboam, who gets known as Jeroboam II, because Jeroboam the first was the first ruler of uh, the northern kingdom. And Jeroboam, if you remember that name, he's the one that brought in golden calf worship and, and led the people away from God. And so uh, Jehoiaz did not name his son a very good <laughs> after a very good person, but he is the first king of the the first king, so I guess in his mind he is, but, but uh, you know, most people would not think that he had named his king, son after a very strong, strong uh, individual. Uh, verse 17. Oh, and again, the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel is a book we don't have. I know. <laughs> yeah, I know. I have to look for that. Yeah, we don't want to look for that in the Bible. It's not there. Uh, somewhere in history or some museum probably has it, but uh, we don't have it. And again... <laughs> yeah, and it wouldn't anyway, because chapters and verses only came around in, uh, in very recent times for all that goes, so that we could find books and Bible, uh, chapters and books in the Bible. Uh, in the past, they would just say, open the scroll of Isaiah 2, and they would give you the, the general idea of where they wanted it, and you were supposed to know the book well enough to know where to open it up to, uh, or you had to read the whole thing. Uh, they might have had some column numbers or some page numbers somewhere on it, but uh, it was not, not uh, quoted the way we quote them. And they would often say, according to the prophet 
Job or Jonah or something, and they would quote them. And you were expected to know those books well enough to say, yes, it is in their book, or no, it's not. Uh, it's much easier our way with chapters and verses. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, verse 17, And Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, lived after the death of Jehoash, son of Jehoiaz, king of Israel, 15 years. And the rest of, acts of, Am of the acts of Amaziah, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Judah? Another book we don't have. And they made a, now they made a conspiracy against him in Jerusalem, and he fled to Lachish. But they went after him to Lachish and slew him there. And they brought him on horses, and he was buried in Jerusalem with his fathers in the city of David. All right. So after the death of Jehoiaz, Amaziah lives for another 15 years. And whatever he's done, people don't like him either. They conspire to kill him. Part of it is probably the increased, I'm, I'm sure there was increased taxes involved in this and whatever else. All right. And again, just as with his father, we're not told why they conspired against him. These are supposed to be some of the better kings. They were good kings that sought God, but not completely good kings. So that probably is part of the battle as well. You know, he's wanting them to follow God and come to the temple. They're wanting to go worship Baal and Astoroth and Gamesh and, and Moloch and all these other gods, which is going to cause a turmoil. Very much as what's going on even in our country today where we had the reaction against Christianity pushing against it, and now we've got things going so far the other direction that things are pushing hard against Christianity to silence Christians. Same type of thing going on here. He's trying to develop them to come to God. And they're going, we don't like that. He's raised taxes to, to, to build the, rebuild the wall, most likely, and to rebuild the coffers that he's lost everything in. Uh, so tried to rebuild his army that had been defeated and, and all of this. And somewhere in all of that mix, people get so upset with him, they conspire to kill him. In his case, though, he hears about it. And he makes an escape to... Lachish, and Lachish is about 30 miles southwest of Jerusalem. Uh, you know, if you're looking at the map, it's right above the big word Judah. So he, he runs about 30 miles away to try to get away from the inner circle who's trying to kill him. And it says they went after him and chased after him to Lachish and killed him there. Now the good thing is, is they bring him back to Jerusalem to give him a proper burial a kingly burial. They put him in the same tombs where David and the other, other kings of David are, are buried. So even though they were angry and conspired against him, they still honored him in his death, which is a good thing. I mean, it wasn't that he was dishonored and just buried somewhere. In, huh? If Hey, you know, there's confusion. I think it's because God said he's David's son and he didn't allow him to be dishonored. Most likely. I believe it was God, because I agree with you. It makes no sense to conspire against your king and then, and then, then honor him in burial. Yeah. Uh, now, part of that, though, could be a political thing. There were, would have definitely been some people that were happy with him, even though these leaders weren't happy with him. So by giving him a proper burial, they get, make themselves look good like in the eyes of the people who liked him. Uh, 
Well, when you get into politics, politics does strange things. You know, we hate you all, but we're going to honor somebody, you know, that, you know, because we don't want to make somebody else mad at us. And we, we kind of think in one sense that a king could do whatever they wanted, but at the same time, the king could only do what the people allowed them to do, even though they had an army behind them and they could force a lot of things. If you had enough people get mad at you, enough people get angry at you, you know, your, your army could only defend against so many. You know, if the bulk of your population turned against you, the army was made up of their, their sons and daughters and, and, and fathers and whatever. You weren't even sure at a certain point that the army wasn't going to turn against you. So you had to stay popular and you had to do certain things. You couldn't just rule, you know, with whatever you wanted to do. And we saw that... Uh, the, the French saw that during the Revolution and the Republic, where the king tried to, tried to continue going against all the people, and he just made them angrier and angrier, and they rose up against him and finally killed him. Uh, so we see that even kings can't just do what they want. And so this is part of what was going on here. And I think these people either generally said, well, he was a king, he's worthy of, he's worthy of the honor for his title, even though he might, you know, they go, well, he was a real jerk, but he was king, so we're going to, or just a pragmatic, there are people who like him, we want to keep, <laughs> we're going we're gonna to bury him and give him all the honors uh, due to him. And again, nothing in here tells us what it is, but we can, you know, extrapolate some of what, what might have or, or was done. All right? Verse 21, and all the people of Judah took Azariah, which was 16 years old, and made him king instead of his father Amaziah. And he built Eloth and restored it to Judah. After that, the king slept with his fathers. Now, this is kind of an interesting statement. First off, Azariah is a, is a name, is the same name as Uzziah. All right? And Uzziah is one of the greatest kings of Israel outside of David. He's going to rule for a long time. And he is, and then it says, he built Eloth and restored it to Judah. And after that, the king slept with his fathers. I don't understand this because we're going to keep talking about Azariah for a long time. So I don't know the, who it is that slept with his fathers at this point. Uh, maybe it was after he be, after he rebuilt uh, Eloth that he, that he, that he died, uh, and, then, and then they go back and re redo some of his story. I don't know. Uh, and if you're curious as to where Eloth is, it's not even on our map because it's so far south. It is at the very end tip of the Gulf of Aqaba, which if you go up the Red Sea, the Red Sea splits into two, two divisions, and the Gulf of Aqaba is on the east side of it. And if you've watched any news, you've heard some stories about the Gulf of Aqabad. It's a real dangerous place for shipping to go into because Iran thinks that they own it. <laughs> and they keep going after the ships that are going up the Gulf of Aqaba. <laughs> well, that a city right at the extreme tip of that was built by U Uzziah or Azariah. And he built that city, established it, and it was so far south, it might have been that by the time he established it, 
it was at the very end of his life and he died. And I didn't look at the history on that, but because it says he built that city and he died, but now we're going to go right back and talk more about him as we, as we go on, on in this story. Um, so any questions before we move on? We're traveling real fast, but all this is pretty much just history. All right, verse 23. In the 15th year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, began to reign in Samaria and reigned 41 years. And he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord and departed not from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin. He restored the coast of Israel from the entering of Hamath unto the, unto the sea of the plain, according to the word of the Lord of God, which spoke in the, by the hand of his ser- servant Jonah, and the, the son of Amathiah, the prophet, which was a, of Gophifer. And the Lord saw the, the affliction of Israel, that it was very bitter, and that there was not any shut up, nor any left, nor any helper for Israel. And the Lord said not that he would blot out the name of Israel from under the heavens, but he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. All right. So 22 took Azariah all the way to his death and didn't talk much about him, even though he's one of the great kings. Chronicles talks a lot about him, so we'll get to Chronicles and and talk about him at some point. Um, But in the 15th year of of Amaziah, Jeroboam II takes over over the throne. And he reigns in Samaria for 41 years. He has one of the longest, one of the longest reigns of any of the northern kingdom's kings. And he's a bad king. And he's a pretty bad king all the way around. And it says, He did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord and departed not from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Naboth, who made Israel to sin. So he is going to take after his namesake and be setting up idols and keep they're going to keep worshiping the golden calf they're going to do everything that but you know it's very interesting because verse 25 says and he restored the coast of israel from the entering of and Haboth unto the sea of the plain Haboth is a city way way north again it's off of our off of our map it's way up on the northern it's on the uh, orontos river which is closing up close to the Euphrates, it's only about 100 miles from the Euphrates. So he goes way north. He, Jeroboam II expands the kingdom of Israel, northern kingdom, all over the place. And he conquers land all the way down to toward the Dead Sea. So he is encroaching on Judah in a big way. So he really expands Israel. He, he is one of the, the largest northern kingdom times in his, in his run. He is a military genius. He got, he got something from his father. Oh, yeah. He's, it, covers mo, it covers over half the map, yeah. uh, two-thirds of the map that I gave you, at least on the western, western portion of it. He is conquering land everywhere. And he is expanding. And he's an evil king. And this is one of those things that is very interesting for us and hard for us sometimes as Christians, and even David said, why do the, why do the heathen rage, and you know what, God, why, why, do they, why do they get victorious, and why aren't you, you know, judging them and, and crushing them? Why do they seem like they're getting everything they want? It's a question we have to this day. God, why do these bad people seem to have everything? And we, don't, and we leave the seam out. 
God, why do these good people have everything? But you know, in reality, they don't because they're not going to be happy with everything they get. And there's going to be emptiness in their heart because they don't have what they need, and that's God. And, but it, it looks, I mean, in this case, people in Judah would have been looking at him and saying, wow, why is he being so successful? They, they worship the golden calf. They worship Astoroth. They worship all these gods. And they're not worshiping God. And look at all the victories that this king's having. Why is God letting them be victorious? And poor Uzziah, Azariah has to look in there and say, probably shake his head, because he's a godly king. He's a godly man. And he's probably looking at God, why do I have such a small kingdom? And he's being victorious everywhere he goes. You know, it's got to be hard for him. You know, he's encouraging the people to worship God. He's encouraging the people to do what they're supposed to. And he looks to the north, and the king up there is not following God, not doing anything by God's ways, and getting bigger and stronger and moving. Yeah, well. When God uses judgment, when judgment falls, it makes the wicked look like they're prospering. But they never do prosper in the long run, and God always has an accountability in the, in the end. But right now, it looks like everything's going good for him. <laughs> you know, he's winning battles. He's, he's building up a nation. He's, he's doing great things. And it says he did all this according to the word that was spoken by Jonah. Now, we're, we're sure by this lineage... We're, we're, we're sure by the lineage given here that it is the Jonah swallowed by the great fish and sent to Nineveh. But there's nothing in the book of, our book of Jonah that says anything about this. All right? That, we, that is clear. Now, again, Jonah was a prophet of God. So the, the, the only thing he said was not in Nineveh. He spoke somewhere else for God because he was called a prophet even before he was told to go to Nineveh. So what did he say? What other books did he write? How much did he write? How much did he say? We don't know. But somewhere there was a, something said by him that they're attributing to Jeroboam II in, in, his, in his victories. Uh, what it is, we don't know. Uh, and this is kind of those, one of those things like we go, God, could we please have these books so we can see what else is out there? But they're not there for a reason. What it would mean is that not every word of those books was accurate and spoken by God. And we look at the same thing in the New Testament. Paul writes all these letters. We get, uh, what is it, 17 of his, 19 of his letters are part of the scripture. But he keeps referring to Read the other letters. If you receive letters from me, you know, if you've received letters from me that aren't by me, you know, uh, you know, look back at the other letters. Paul wrote letters all the time. But only a small handful of his letters made it into the Bible. So only a few handful of them were inspired works from God. The other was just the pastor writing to his people and encouraging them and teaching them. Not that they were bad letters, not that they were even false doctrine letters, but they weren't 100% accurate uh, inspired letters. So this particular reference to Jonah might have been something that was circulating back then in, the, in their day that people read, but they didn't consider it scripture. Just a good, no, good prophecy from Jonah, 
along with whatever else was in that prophecy. Or it might have been such a specific prophecy that they figured it wasn't worth putting in the, in the scriptures. We don't know. All right. Um, in verse 26, For the Lord saw the affliction of Israel, that it was very bitter, and there, there was, was not any shut up, nor any left, nor any helper for Israel. Now, this is kind of an interesting statement because it reads very... It reads different in English than it does in the, in the Hebrew. It says, For the Lord saw the poverty and mi misery of Israel. So here they are getting lots of victories, expanding, but everything that they're doing is kind of going into the war machine. You know, they're, they're, they're at, and this also this part of this poverty is spiritual poverty as well. All right? So they're having victories, they're having physical poverty, and they have spiritual poverty. There's nothing good going on with them. And it was very bitter or rebellious. People are rebellious. And without God, people get rebellious. And this is something that is very interesting in our world because what is happening in America right now? People cannot speak their anger. They cannot you know, do things that are useful in their anger. They get destructive and rebellious. And that goes for both sides. You know, we had a last summer where it was all the left that was destroying cities. And then, you know, after the election, we had, you know, the ultra-right conservatives, you know, trying to uh, storm the Capitol. So it doesn't matter. When you're far from God, rebellion and violence is what ends up happening. And the more we get away from God's word, the more anger and bitterness and rebellion and... and uh, and all of that we will see. And we are seeing it more and more with each passing generation. We're seeing the violent activities going on. And we go to the next part, and it was not any shut up or restrained. So nobody was restrained. Nobody was keeping from sin. And again, that's exactly what we're seeing in our day. The further we get away from God, the more people just sin. And they start doing what's right in their own eyes. And every time we discouple some law and some reaction from God's way of doing things, where do you draw the line? We saw that with the idea of homosexuality being declared by the court that it was unconstitutional to not recognize them. Now, they, they, contrary to what we hear in the, in the news and everything, they did not make it a law. They just said it was unconstitutional to not do it. To not recognize them. So they didn't pass it? Or? Well, the, the courts never make law. They judge the constitutionality. There's not a law until Congress takes up the law and makes a law. But people have been told by the media for so long that it's a law of the land that they bought it because they don't know their civics. They don't understand how laws are made. And so this is a problem in our country. We need to get people trained on how government is supposed to work. And, but, it, but it's here. But the point is, once they started doing that, now we're starting to see people really go gangbusters on every other possible way. Right after, the, right after that decision, they decided people were suing to, to marry their pets, their children, their, 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 their close relatives and everything because... Once you uncouple from God's laws and his standards, where do you draw the line? 
you can't. And that's what they said. They're, they were set up or unrestrained. Whatever they wanted to do, they did. And this is a problem. We're seeing it big time in our country. We're seeing it all around the world. The further we get from God, the more unrestrained and total spiritual depravity we see. And that's what he's saying out there. And he says, nor any left, nor any helper for Israel. In this case, he's saying nobody was standing up for God. Nobody was wanting to be their savior, their, their, their redemption. In uh, Elijah and Elisha's day, there was at least one person standing up and saying, this is what God says. At this point, he's saying during the reign of Jeroboam, apparently there were no prophets standing up that were living very long anyway. Uh, and so we have all of this, and it says, And the Lord said not that he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven. He saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. They're totally evil. The whole nation, not just the king, the whole nation. And God says, I'm not blotting you out during this turn. 41 years of spiritual and, and sinful depravity. And God does not judge them for 41 years. Now, I'm sure there were little, little judgments in here, but God didn't do anything to stop them in a mighty way. He let them have their own way. That's what they wanted. He let them have it. Now, we do know that sin has consequences, so at some point there are going to be consequences, and for the northern kingdom, there are going to be great consequences because they're going to go into captivity very shortly because of their sin. God will let sin Keep growing until judgment falls. So that when judgment falls, he said, you had every opportunity out there. God gave the nations in Canaan before the Israelites came in 430 years to repent and follow him. And they kept getting worse and worse. And God finally says, all right, Israel, go in and kill them all. Kill all of them. God will do this. He'll let countries keep going and going and going and going. And when they don't repent, he'll destroy. And, you know, sometimes we look at it and say, God, why are you so harsh? But it is his holiness and his righteousness. He lets them keep going to the point where they just are not going to repent and be redeemed. And then he'll bring in judgment. And that's what he's going to do to the northern kingdom here in just a short short period of time. He's going to bring in judgment. All right, verse 28. Now the rest of the acts of Jeroboam and all that he did and his might, how he warred and how he re- recovered Damascus and Hamath, and, which belonged to, to Judah for Israel, and are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel? And Jeroboam slept with his fathers, even with the kings of Israel and And Zechariah, his son, reigned in his stead. So here we have, after 41 years, we have 41 years covered in just a few chapters, just a few verses. Uh, And even even Uzziah, I mean, up at this point, just gave us two verses of his life. And, you know, we're going to take him up in the next chapter a little bit. Uh, But... The book of Kings starts running very quick here, you know, to the end. There, there's not a whole lot talked about any of these kings in the next few chapters. It just gives them very quick highlights of their story and that they died. They lived and they died. They lived and they died. 
here's, here's one thing they did, you know, reigned for 41 years and all he did was conquer a few cities in, uh, in 41 years and got bad. <laughs> and got worse every, every gener with every, every part of every year. You know, and I keep bringing this up for us because so many of us will read the Bible and say, wow, the things were so exciting in the Bible days. Well, they really weren't. When you really start looking for the time markers, they lived just like we did. Long periods of time where you just do your day-to-day -day living and serve God the best you can and then have something big happen in your life and go right back to living day-to-day -day normal activities and then have something big happen in your life and then go back to living day to day. Now, I'm not saying that our day to day is non-miraculous. If we really looked at what God's doing for us on our day to day walk, we'll have a different attitude about it anyway. How many blessings does God give us every day? You know, this is why I love the song, Count Your Blessings, Name Them One by One, and It Will Surprise You What the Lord Has Done. You know, we forget the little blessings that God does for us. You know, the little bits and things. I was praying for, 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 for something here recently, and God, God fulfilled it for me. Now, I knew, I knew the, you know, that deliverance was coming someplace, but I wanted to see it you know, sooner than later, uh, before I had too many things that weren't going to be taken care of in the process, and God took care of it. It's an amazing thing to watch God work and see the little blessings that he brings to us. A little bit here, a little bit there, a little bit here, a little bit there. You know, too many times we as human beings are looking for the, the big things that God is doing for us. You know, we need to focus ourselves on being able to see the small things as well. Because that will change our attitude. Because if I'm thinking, God, you've not done anything for me lately, then I start focusing on all the things I don't have and all the things I didn't see. And I totally ignore all the things that God has done. And you hear it from any of your lost friends, you know, they'll tell you about how bad life is and how everything's not going right and, you know, this, that, and the other thing because they don't see anything good. And they don't really deserve it because they're not serving God in the first place, but, you know, we don't deserve it either when it comes down to it. We are saved by grace. We get our benefits from God by grace. And anytime we think we start deserving everything, God's going to make sure we understand we don't deserve it. For by grace are you saved through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. Very clear verse on that. And too often we think somehow God blessed me because. <laughs> you know, God, you blessed me because I went to church every, every, every time the doors were open. God, you blessed me because I've been giving my tithe. God, you blessed me because, you know, put whatever work you've been doing in there. And God says, no, I really didn't bless you with that. I just blessed you because I'm gracious. And you're my child, and I wanted to give you a blessing. That would be like our kids saying, well, you just gave me what I want. You just gave them what they wanted because they listened to you. Well, that might be partially true, but it shouldn't be our only reason for blessing our children. We love our children. We bless them. And God loves us and blesses us, even when we totally don't deserve it. You know, isn't it amazing? You know, you can almost make a case when you're, when you're serving God and you're going to church and you're reading your Bible and you're passing out tracts, you can almost make a case that God blessed me because of some of the things I did. But how about those times when God has blessed you when you know you don't deserve it? You haven't done anything right. And he still was gracious and kind to you. It's a wonderful thing to see that God loves us so much 
that he wants to bless us. Even when we don't deserve it, which is all the time, but I mean, even when we really don't deserve it, you know, he'll still bless us. So we, we're see, we just went through two kings' lives in, in one chapter. <laughs> Actually, three kings' lives in one chapter. Uh, you know, not, not good kings. And Uzziah is a good king, but they didn't talk about him. So, Lord, we just thank you for this evening. We thank you for how much you love us, Lord. We thank you that you do care for us and that eventually, Lord, you always bring the scales of justice to, to bear and people will get what they deserve. And, and you have put all of our sin on Jesus so that we don't get what we deserve. We get the, your grace and your, from his sacrifice. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Listening friend, do you know where you'll go after you die? Without the gift of Jesus, it will be an eternity in hell without God. Good works will not get you there. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. To spend eternity with God, we must recognize that we are sinners in need of Christ. For all of sin and come short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. To be assured eternal life, we simply talk to God, admit you are a sinner, and ask him for his free gift. You must mean the words to get the, to be answered. Jesus is waiting to hear your request. If you have asked him for eternal life, he has come into you and he will change you. Start reading the book of Ephesians and see what God says about your new life. After you understand the book of Ephesians, you can start reading the Gospel of John. Next, find a good Bible teaching church. Tell the pastor about your decision for God and be taught. If you contact us, we will send you a new believer booklet free of charge. Congratulations and grow in Christ. You can contact us by email at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or by snail mail at P.O. Box 65, Chloride, Arizona 86431. We are happy to help with your new life in Christ or even answering Bible questions. Again, congratulations on your decision for Christ.